next on World Radio Gardening, plants, soil and gardens from around the globe with Ken Crowther. Hi, I'm Ken Crowther and I've been gardening for nearly, well, in fact, just over 60 years. I've seen so many gardens in my time across different parts of the world, as well as in the UK. Garden festivals were a thing some years ago. I think it was Mr. Hesseltine who actually got those going. They were very good for the industry and they gave different countries the chance of showing off their styles of gardening. I've been to several countries around the world and also had the opportunity of interviewing several people from across different parts of Europe and as far away as Australia and even seen gardens in Japan. So my knowledge and information that I store in my head about those gardens when people ask for them is actually quite quite a lot and I can actually churn a bit out occasionally and give people ideas on little features that they perhaps can put in their own garden. It's a conglomeration of lots of information put together and we'll be traveling across the world and around the globe here on World Radio Gardening. In this episode, we look at the English cottage garden style. Main features to look out for. Arbors using climbing roses. Let the plants flow over onto the paths. The herbaceous border was popularized during the Victorian period by Gertrude Jekyll and consists of a collection of perennial herbaceous plants. That's plants that last two years or longer. The flowers are usually arranged with larger plants at the back and the softer, bushier ones that are lower towards the front of the bed. The key is to plant a range of flowers to provide interest and blooms throughout the spring, summer and well into the autumn. The colour palette of this garden is a mixture of bright, cheerful colours. Plants to include are alliums with their bulbous purple heads, foxgloves, hollyhocks, roses, delphiniums, sweet peas, tulips and other flowers to include in the mix are go for nicotiana, poppies, nasturtium and good old favourite cosmos. Sean Harkin is a team leader at Wisley Gardens. Now you look after a vast amount of areas, but particularly you look after, one of the things that fascinates me is your herbaceous borders. Now you look after a lot of herbaceous borders, don't you, Sean? Well, we do. We look after the more, what I would term, kind of forward thinking or modern of our herbaceous borders, or some people refer to them as more new perennial movements. They've got lots of grasses and perennials in them. Um, so all the area around the glass house, which was originally designed by Tom Stewart Smith, and also the glass house borders, which were originally designed by Pete Udolph, um, 
are kind of some of the biggest draws, I would say, for Wisley. And they are, in contrast, but complement our traditional mixed borders. So, you know, are you, out of interest, I'm listening to you and watching your face, are you actually a more traditionalist? Because you've really got, I mean, that central border, the herbaceous borders that have been here for, I don't know how many years. I mean, how many years have they been there? The tradition, the big ones up the middle. So here. they've been here a while. Yeah, they will have been here, uh, I think, for about 50 years. They roughly. must be. Well, actually longer. I think they were redone by um, Grain Thomas, um, sorry, Grain Stuart Thomas, um, I think in the late 60s, but there would have been traditional borders like that here since almost day one um, I am though I mean I appreciate both and I don't think we're lucky enough here to have the space that we can do both from my point of view though the new the new borders that we have here with uh, they're not fed they're not staked they're very good for wildlife they have an amazingly long season of interest um, the grasses the way they move in the wind how they illuminate um, especially in low light in the winter um, the amount of birds in them, the amount of bees and insects in them in the summer, um, I wouldn't I wouldn't swap that for anything. You so. wouldn't swap that for the traditional one. The traditional one will lose some of its interest in the winter much more so, even if you leave seed heads on. It's not as good in the winter, is it? I can't help but say that. It's not, it's not as good in the winter, no, and even if you do leave things standing, um, the basis of the traditional border is that everything's staked and we just still do use um, birch weaved structures within the plants. You do need to start clearing a lot earlier just to physically get rid of all the, the structures in there and then cut things back and get everything prepared for the next season. Um, so there's not there's not the, the same interest. It gets to a high point. I mean, the mixed borders look great all the way through summer. And if we don't get frost, then they keep on going through to October, even November some years. Which we're actually seem to be happening more and more, doesn't that it? That does seem to be the case, yeah. I mean, our, the garden's looking amazing now for such a long period of time. But they, do, they don't look as good. November, December, January, February, March even. We don't cut back a lot of our our perennials and grasses until, until March, sometimes late March. And to have that season of interest for so long and the frost catching the seed heads, yeah, I wouldn't swap it. You wouldn't swap it? No. How long, actually, out of interest, do, do, I can't remember how long, how long is that border, the original one? Because it's, it's hundreds of yards, isn't it? It is massive. It's I can't massive, remember the exact... And, of course, it runs down that slight slope and it really gives such a good impression. It does, and it? then well, then it keeps on going towards Battleston Hill where we have the Henry Moore Arch. Um, and so it is... It is deceptive because of the borders actually seen twice as long because of half of them are actually our woodland yeah. garden, um, <laughs> which kind of become part of the borders, though they are separate. So it is a kind of trick of the eye, but yeah, they're huge. You've talked about your borders, you know, with the grasses around, around those areas. They're more modern, they're a different style. And I suppose really you get a mix of people coming here of all different ages. And do you find that, you know, looking at a younger generation, because we get a lot of younger people with their children coming here that are perhaps, I don't know, mid-30s and upwards, say. New houses they must have, new gardens, strangely possibly smaller gardens. Do they, do they, can they comprehend this large borders and could they take a bit of that and put it in their own little garden, do you think? I think so. I think... I think it's difficult. We do have model gardens here, but we're moving away from them because if most people come here, I don't think they need to see an exact replica of a small garden that they can re recreate at home. Um, lots of things are about giving people ideas. So we do try and create on smaller scale in different areas of the garden, smaller borders where you could actually just recreate that in your garden and also mix through pots and different things, which is more kind of relates to the home gardener, I would say. 
because sadly gardens are getting much smaller, aren't they, for people at home, you know. I don't know whether that's sad or not. It depends whether you're a keen gardener, I suppose. I suppose it does. I mean, it's sad for it's sad for wildlife. The corridors that the gardens at home provide um, all grouped together is, is a massive resource for, for wildlife. Um, if you are, aren't a keen gardener, though, it does mean that you can come to Wisley, you can pick out... It is really important to choose key plants that you really love and are going to give you season for a long period of time rather than just picking anything out because of you want it to actually deliver all year, these plants. So I think it is really key then to actually come and pick things you really like. Going back to your job, you're two, you've been a couple of years on the, as team leader on this area. What happens in Wisley? Do you, do you look after that area for a long time or do you actually get the opportunity of moving on to another area? Or perhaps you wouldn't choose to? Um, I wouldn't necessarily choose to. I mean, I'm particularly, there's lots of projects happening in my area at the moment. Um, we're developing a new winter walk on seven acres, um, which will loop around past our kind of lakes. Um, and that'll be amazing. So I'm very happy to be working on that. And we've just started a South African meadow as well in my section. There is opportunity, other team leaders do move around. If I wanted to, um, there'd have to be the opportunity there. As in, but yeah, if I wanted to to go and lead on fruit and veg for a while, I could, I could express that interest and it would be, they're keen for us all to develop, so I, it, it would be possible. Do many people leave RHS Wisley or do you find talking to people here that you know older people that they've actually stayed here for years and years because it's just such a fantastic place to work so we have both so we have members of staff that have been here for many years and volunteers as well which have been here for some of them as long as 40 years they just don't want to go anywhere for other people it is a place to come it's a place to learn to to kind of to get the best of your game really and then to potentially move closer to home or and set up something or or run another garden so we do have a mix and the fluidity of having people that stay here for years and then the fresh people coming through for a number of years and then moving on is quite exciting and it does mean that we've got relations with lots of people in lots of gardens you yourself where are you actually from i'm from manchester so you're quite away from home yeah. so does this mean longer term you might actually choose to get back to somewhere nearer manchester we won't quote you, but I mean, um, is, it, is it something longer term you think you I'm do? not sure. Um, I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, I do love Manchester. Um, I have, I love being at Wisley, so... It's a difficult balance, was, isn't Yeah, it? it's a difficult, difficult balance. I mean, the RHS is doing, and other organisations are doing lots of work in terms of promoting green spaces in cities, um, you know, kind of passing on knowledge to people in urban areas, people that don't necessarily have the privilege of being able to come to Wisley all the time. And public spaces is something I'm very interested in. So I wouldn't say never. I do want to stay in the public realm of gardening. So it has to be open to the public. It has to be sharing, sharing this with people rather than just for a select few. But what you're actually saying is interesting because you, you never know which direction the RHS are going to go into in the, in the future because it is a charity. You could end up in a role helping people within perhaps an area that you might have lived in the past to develop gardens through the RHS even. Well, that's right. I mean, we've got the Britain and Bloom happening at the moment. In the future, there is plans for an urban garden. At the moment, we're very focused on kind of out-of-city sites for our gardens, and it would be very interesting for us to have more presence within cities and local communities in a garden sense, as well as the work we do in communities and schools. So, yeah, I think there's possibility. It just goes on and on, doesn't it? It does, really. And yeah. you've got a lovely smile, Sean, right, because thanks. I can see that, you know, I mean, um, we always say that gardeners are always fairly happy people. 
they've got to love what they're doing because they put up with some great weather like this summer. But you can put up with some appalling weather and you've still got to keep smiling, haven't you? Well, you do. I mean, every year is different. Um, but the joy you get from being in such an amazing place and seeing the seasons develop is, yeah, it's amazing. So. Now, last but not least, um, website for the RHS so that people can check it out and they can find out a bit more about Wisdom. Okay, so we've got a new website coming, but on the same domain, and it's www.rhs.org.uk. Three simple things to consider about the English cottage style garden. Number one, perennials can be hard work to maintain as they will require digging up every three to four years to make sure that they keep a clean, well-spaced, herbaceous border. Number two, get a bench installed so you can look at this beautiful collection of flowers in bloom and time to have either a mug of tea or a glass of wine. Number three, alliums and a few climbing roses over the door can instantly transport you to the English cottage garden. So get them in the ground. I caught up with Anita Dent in her garden one early spring to talk about roses. I'm with Anita Dent, Bayer Garden, and we're coming towards the beginning of spring. And... People think of roses, don't they? I always think roses are very important, aren't they? They are very important. To they're an English a, garden. They're, they're quintessentially English, aren't they, really? Um, most gardens have a, at least a rose bush in it or a, some, a collection of rose plants, perhaps. They've always been uh, popular. But of course, since the Clean Air Act of I don't know when, because I can't even remember it, um, roses have suffered a bit more because we don't get that dreadful sulphur that we used to help to keep them clean. Is it? No, that's right. Um, sulphur in the air um, was very good at controlling black spot on roses. Um, I don't think I'd wish which, those days back, though, would you? No, no, but maybe some rose growers would <laughs> in a strange kind of way. But no, the, the air's a lot cleaner now, but unfortunately that does um, affect roses um, to a greater or a lesser extent uh, with black spot. And, of course, they do suffer from uh, mildew and rust as well. But a lot of the modern-day roses now, uh, as you know, you know, are often bred um, to be more resistant against certain traits such as or certain um, infections such as that. But really, we've got to get to it fairly quickly. So is it that we look at last year to judge that we had that problem and therefore we got to spray early? Yeah, I mean, with um, fungicides, it's ideal to spray preventatively. Um, so by that, what I mean is that you get onto the plants earlier to try and protect the plant from getting it in the first place. But something else that's a good idea to do, which I do, is uh, to make notes of the different varieties of roses that you've got, because some may be more susceptible to particular diseases than others or indeed maybe where they're actually planted maybe they're up against a wall or something so you're not getting yep. uh, the air, air exactly mm. or it's more humid for whatever reason so they might be more susceptible to 
particular diseases, powdery mildew, for example. So therefore, you could perhaps, you know, just make sure that you keep an eye on those. But also, you know, the British climate is very temperamental. So what happened one year doesn't necessarily follow. It's going to happen the next year. So year on year, there's going to be different weather trends, which could, of course, um, make the problem uh, different from the subsequent years. I mean, I'd start to possibly prune my roses during this month. So I suppose, could we follow that up with a spray? And if so, what will we use? You, I mean, I think personally at this time of the year, yes, certainly to uh, cut back or quite hard prune the roses, making sure that you remove any crossover branches just to keep the plant nice and open, depending obviously on what type of rose uh, plant it is. Um, with regard to spraying, I don't really think there's a lot of point spraying now. Um, the leaves, if any, are going to be very small at bud stage, and you really you need the leaves to be fully unfurled and, and hardened slightly to the uh, climate before you spray. So that's and, when you spray, is after the leaf has formed? Yes, that's right, yeah, when it's fully unfurled. And you tend to get uh, diseases later on in the in the season anyway when the weather's a bit more mild so spraying at this time of the year when essentially the plant is still very dormant you haven't got any leaf coverage there's not a lot of point really in in spraying anything in my opinion so we've done our feeding and we're going to think of feeding something at this time of the year in readiness for the spring Yes, you could um, apply a general purpose slow-release plant food or indeed a, a marketed uh, rose food such as Top Rose or even the new Top Rose Gold, which has got uh, biostimulants in it now, which will help the plant to um, enhance the plant's ability to utilise uh, the plant nutrients. So that's got something in mixed in with it that actually gets the, what the food to the plant quicker? Yeah, that's right. It... It helps the plant assimilate the food better and to utilise the, the food that's available to it and also it encourages nice, stronger growth as well. So, right, so we're doing that and we, yeah. we've just talked about funguses and pests, so we're actually looking at those a bit later on. But what are, what are some of the best sprays that we should have ready to do that then? Well, I think, I think we'd be quite safe to say that all rose plants get affected by fungal problems and insect problems i think across the board i think we're, we're, we're quite safe to say that so you'd assume that they're going to get something so with regard to fungicides uh, we sell um, multi-rose which is a systemic fungicide um, we also sell a new uh, fungus fighter concentrate and fungus fighter plus which are ready to use and concentrate formulations uh, again systemic fungicides which can be used preventatively or curatively for controlling a range of fungal problems. Now, when we say a systemic, it means that it goes into the plant and stays in the plant, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. Yes, exactly. What happens is, in this case, uh, the foliage, the leaves, actually draw in the uh, chemical, the active ingredient. It's then moved around the sap system of the plant, so like your blood supply, basically. Mm. Um, and once it's in, in the plant system any fungal spores which those plants are susceptible to and the product will control actually kills the, the uh, spore germinating tube which is what it needs to, to do to start the infection within the plant. So if the plant is protected internally, this germinating tube is killed so therefore much more likely to control the fungal disease or stop it from 
from taking hold in the first place. And I imagine a pesticide is doing a similar sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Um, interestingly, our systemic um, insecticides, uh, the Pravada Ultimate Bug Killer, the Concentrate and the Ready to Use, um, are again drawn into the plant sap system, um, so will then protect the plant. So when um, particularly sap feeding insects um, oh, feed on the sap. Things, yeah. yeah, we've got the rose aphids mm. um, and other um, pests. When they feed on the sap of the plant, that's they ingest the chemical and that's how they're controlled. So it's really watching for all these things, isn't it? And getting to them very early. That's the important thing, isn't it? In an ideal world, yes. In an ideal world. And again, you know, watching out for more susceptible plants um, or roses in this case is, is, is something good that, you know, you can always do just to be one step ahead of the game, if possible. Now, you mentioned right at the beginning about how the breeders are, are trying to get, obviously, roses that have got, they are less disease problems, there's less, you know, less problems generally with them. And I suppose if, if you were planting a new rose garden, a brand new rose garden, that's really what you should look out for, isn't it? Um, yes, I think if you're looking to plant new rose stock completely, um, it's a good idea perhaps to have an idea in your mind as to the type of rose plants you want. I mean, there's a whole heap of roses that you could choose from, for example, hybrid teas, Floribunda, shrub roses, Old climbers, ramblers. Yeah. yeah, just goes on and exactly. on. Exactly. So you, once you've decided on that, you know, you might want to also consider the colour of the flowers where you want the plants to be, what you actually want them to do. Do you want them to scramble through trees? Do you want them to be quite formalised in a bed? Do you want scented? Obviously, most people want some form of scent. You know, so there are quite a lot of things to consider. And then you could also look into, you know, um, some of the more modern um, varieties maybe that have got, you know, improved resistance to certain uh, fungal problems if... For example, your garden is in an area which is particular, you know, regionally, uh, you're in an area which is quite susceptible to um, those type of uh, diseases. So watch out for that. And really, it's good preparation, lots of compost in the bed, because they're going to be there a long time, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. It's always a very good idea to introduce a lot of um, organic matter, um, ideally, I suppose, in the form of rotted um, farmyard manure. Dig that in nicely. Um, make a nice deep hole um, for the roses and they need to be twice the width of the root system once you've teased it out and about the depth of the spade of blade, um, that sort of depth. Don't bury the bud where it's been budded. No, that's why I was going to come on to that. So you've got the graft union, so you want to ensure that the, the graft union is level with the soil. Um, and what you can do is when you dig your hole is to lay a cane across the hole to ensure that when you replant your or you plant your new rose into that hole, that the it's a great temptation, isn't it, to Push it put down. it in and then give it a good old heel in, and then you find that the graft unions, you know, a few inches below the soil level. So by using that cane, you just get a good levelling, and then you can ensure that the graft union is is at the soil level. And if you're planting at this time of year, you'd you'd add a, a rose fertiliser around them just to give them a bit of a start? I would, yeah, in the backfill soil. I, I'd just sprinkle a little bit of that in. Won't do any harm at all. And then maybe another another feed as their new plants sort of early summertime. And yep. there you have a beautiful new rose garden. Fingers crossed. I hope that's brought a little of this wonder garden style to life here on World Radio Gardening. 
I'll be back with more on the plants, soils and gardens from around the globe in the near future, only on World Radio Gardening. And remember, if you would like to tell us about your garden, then please head to worldradiogardening.com and use the comments forms to post on our news story features. Thank you.